Welcome to Carolina Family Church. As I said, my name is John, and I'm the pastor here, and we're starting a new series. Now, I was been thinking about the end of school. You know, um, this past week or two weeks or whatever, they've been doing EOGs in school, right? How many of you are in school? Raise your hand if you're in high school, in public school, high school, whatever. All right, do you have to do end of the year tests? It's nerve wracking, right? Um, and uh, I decided to volunteer this year to be a proctor for testing. My wife, take that back. My wife volunteered me this year to be a proctor for testing. She's, she's uh, one of the assistant principals here. She's in charge of testing for the entire school, and they're always struggling to get proctors. And basically what a proctor does, is they just observe the test. So you're making sure that the, the uh, teachers are doing what they're supposed to do and not doing what they're not supposed to do, and that the students are doing what they're supposed to do and not doing what they're not supposed to do. But the thing about being a proctor is that you don't get to do anything except that. You can't have your phone, you can't have a book, you can't listen to music, nothing. All you're doing for hours on end is walking around the room looking at the students. It became a game at some point for me because when you look on the, the iPads that they're testing on, you can see their progress. So I'm walking around the room like, how far is this kid? How far, that, how far is this kid? And I'm just, it's like watching, it's like watching paint dry. But anyway, I was, it took me back to, uh, took me back to when I had to take tests, took me back to when I was in school. And um, I remember there was one book in particular that I had to study for a test that, um, hey, there we go. There was one book in particular that I had to study for a test um, that I could not get my and my head wrapped around. I just could not understand what in the world was going on in this book. Some of you probably had to read it too. How many of you have read Animal Farm? Raise your hand. If you had to read that book, you had to read that book, Animal Farm? So for those of you that haven't read it, it's weird. So there's a, there's a farm, and there's animals, they can talk, which is strange to begin with when you're like at a high school level, that, that's usually like kids' books, and they take over the farm, they revolt against the, uh, the humans, kick them out, they call it Animal Farm, and then the leaders are the pigs, and they, by the end of the book, they're walking on two legs. I'm like, what is going on? I could not understand what is going on in the mind of the author of this book. It made no sense to me whatsoever. I was so frustrated by it, I didn't even want to read it, because I'm like, what's the point in reading this thing if you can't even understand it? Until finally went to class and my teacher explained it. That it's a, it's a commentary by the author on communism, on socialism, and how, how it all works and the, how the, the evils and the atrocities of it and how people are controlled. And all of a sudden when they explained to me what the actual story was of the book, all of a sudden it all made sense. I understood why all these animals were doing what they're doing. Today we're beginning a series called The Old Testament in Seven Weeks, or OT in Seven, if you want to shorten it down. And we are going to go through the entire Old Testament, at least on a, on a surface level, on a flyover level, in seven weeks, seven sessions. Because I know that there are many of you, because I've met you and talked to you, that find the Old Testament very intimidating. You read the Old Testament and you think, what is going on here? It's like me reading Animal Farm. All this strange stuff is happening. There's pillars of fire in the sky and, the, and seas are parting and kings are coming into power and people are taking over people and guys are getting swallowed by fish and I have no idea what's happening with all of this stuff. It can be very, very confusing. But what I want you to see through this series is that there is a grand story that God is telling throughout the whole Bible but begins in the Old Testament that's essential to us understanding what's in it. But because we're intimidated often by the Old Testament, what we like to do is we like to pluck little stories up out of it. 
because those are fun. Those you can put on a felt board, you know? We, we love to talk about David and Goliath. Because if we can pull that story of David and Goliath out, then we can understand that, that, may, that if God gives us power, we could be just like him, the underdog taking down the favorite. You know, unlike the NBA finals this year. The, it's the, we've got the underdog story. And then if God gives me power, then I can slay giants just like David slayed Goliath. And we take all these lessons out of it and we say, well, David refused to wear Saul's armor. He was gonna go like, he, like him instead of being like someone else. And so if I wanna conquer things for God, then I need to be myself instead of being like other people. And we take all these stories and, and that's fine. And that's fine application to make out of the, the historical account of David and Goliath. But there is a bigger thing happening there that God wants us to see and God wants us to understand. But we like to boil it down to those simple things because they're easy to teach. They make great lessons for the kids and because they're easy to understand. But there's a larger picture, a larger story that God is telling. The problem is if we isolate those small stories from the big story, we will miss the whole point of the thing, which is for God to teach us something about himself and about us. And it begins in the Old Testament. And some of you might think, well, it's old. Why would I spend time reading it? It's, oh, I've got this new over here and I've got the old. Why would I spend time with the old when I can spend time with the new? <laughs> well, because it all goes together. <laughs> because old doesn't mean irrelevant. Old means the beginning. It's the first, it's the inception. And so the thing is, if you read through the New Testament, what you'll find is that the writers of the New Testament assume that its readers have an understanding of the Old Testament. That in order to properly understand what Paul writes and, and the Gospels and what Jesus says, in order to understand what comes later in the New Testament, it assumes that we have a good understanding of the Old. Yet for many of us as Christians, we're very well versed in the New Testament and not so much in the Old. So we're going to try to talk about what the big story is so that this will become a little bit more clear for us. So first of all, the Old Testament is a uh, testament. We don't use that word too much except for will, you know, our will and testament, right? But um, the testament means a covenant or agreement. And so in the Old Testament, we read about the old covenant, the old agreement. And the New uh, Testament, we read about the new covenant or the new agreement. So the Old Testament takes us all the way through history right up until Jesus. And then in the New Testament, we start, we actually start with John the Baptist, but we start right at when Jesus comes to earth. And then we go on from there into history. And the Old Testament is 39 books. If you're not familiar with this idea, the Bible is actually not, it is one book, but it's made up of multiple books within it that are letters and prophecies and poetry and all kinds of things and history. And the Old Testament is made up of 39 books. And this is where, this is where a lot of people will end up getting tripped up. The Old Testament is not organized chronologically. And that'll mess with your mind if you don't know that that's the way it is. It doesn't start in Genesis with, the, well, it does start with Genesis in the beginning, but it doesn't, it doesn't end in the last book with the last thing that happens in time. That's not the way it works. The Old Testament is organized into sections based on the type of literature that it is. So the first section of the Old Testament is called the law or the Pentateuch, which I know is a big word, but it's pretty simple when you break it down. Penta means... Five, yeah, right, like the, like the Pentagon, you know? So Penta means five, Took means books. So the, the Pentateuch or the law is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's where we get, and we call it the law because that's where the law is given to the, the nation of Israel. 
So you got those first five books, that's the law. Then you go into the books of history. And these are historical accounts of things that have happened. And you go from, you start with Joshua and you go all the way through and you get to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther is where that section ends. Which can be a little confusing because it ends like in the middle of the Old Testament, but Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are actually the last things that happen chronologically. But they're in there in the, in the historical section. The next section is uh, called the books of wisdom or the books of poetry. So Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, these types of things. And then after the books of poetry, after the books of wisdom, you have the prophets, which many people break down into two subsections, major prophets and minor prophets. It's not that the, the first prophets like, uh, like Isaiah and Jeremiah play in the majors and the others like Malachi and Habakkuk and all of them play in the minors. It just means that they're shorter, they're smaller, we have less from them is why we call them minor prophets. And so that's the way that it's organized, but that makes it a little daunting, I think. It makes it less accessible because we, we start to read through the Old Testament or you try to read through it in order and you're left going, I don't even understand what's going on. Why is this person here and not there? I mean, you've got the book of Job in the middle of, basically in the middle of the Old Testament and Job happens way, 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 way at the beginning, way before Abraham, most likely. So, so it can be a little confusing. So what I've done to help us out with this, to, to, help, to begin getting our mind wrapped around the Old Testament, created a little device. This is actually something I worked with um, Pastor Mike at the Cove on to do when I was with the Cove Church, and I just adapted it for us. Um, this, you should have gotten one of these when you came in. Um, does anybody not have one of these that wants one? We've got a couple over here. Would someone might, yeah, Ryan, that would be great, man. And do me a favor, when you're going out, there's a light switch right by the door. Would you turn that on? It won't be pretty in here, but it'll help us read. So, <laughs> um, so this is a timeline. This takes the, the major people of the Old... There you go. That'll help you read, okay? That um, takes the major people of the Old Testament and organizes this into a timeline that not only is understandable, but you can memorize. I've worked with multiple people on this tool to help memorize the timeline of the Old Testament. It's a lot easier than you might think. So all you have to do is memorize what the sections are, and the order they go in, and there's a logical order, which we'll talk about, and the order of the people underneath. And you can memorize the entire timeline of the Old Testament. And so I'm gonna do it from memory just to prove that it can be done, all right? <laughs> I'm gonna try. If I mess up, just tell me. Nobody's perfect. We talked about that last week. So um, we begin, the Bible begins with the founders, and this is the beginning, all right? Uh, so we have creation, and there go the lights. <laughs> they're probably going to pop back on one at a time. This is what the lights in here do, by the way. <laughs> Every week we turn the lights back on and we're done and we're setting everything up and then they die for some, at, at some point and then they come back on one at a time. But, um, all right, so you begin with the founders in scripture. This is where you have creation and then you have Adam and then you have Noah. You know, the story of Noah uh, is, is right up at the very beginning. It begins in chapter six of Genesis. I think we've got uh, Alan and Mike one over there. Um, so the founders, you got uh, creation, you have Adam, and then you have Noah. Our founders, creation, Adam, Noah. Got more coming around. All right, you're getting them. And then, Jeremy, we've got one more right up here. All right. Now, this is a tool, by the way, I'd love for you to, to hang on to. You can put it in your Bible. You can use it as a bookmark. You put it on your fridge, put it in your car, or whatever, and just work on memorizing this. Memorizing this is going to help you understand the flow of what's happening in the Old Testament, where the pieces go. So the founders, creation, Adam, and then Noah. All right, and then God begins his family, so we have the fathers. This is where God is choosing, is beginning his, his family, his people that he's choosing and setting apart. And so you have Abraham, 
is God makes the promise to Abraham. Then you have his son, Isaac. You have his son, Jacob, who uh, God renames Israel. That's where the name of the nation comes from. He has 12 sons. One of, that's the 12 tribes of Israel. And then one of them is Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Now, if you're working on memorizing this, let me give you a little hint. If you can, if you can remember the names, they're in alphabetical order. Thank you, God. And it doesn't matter whether you call him Jacob or Israel either. It's still in alphabetical order. So, um, so you've got the, you have the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. God is beginning, God is creating his family, his special people. Now, Joseph, if we're going to talk about this throughout the series, but Joseph, he's, he gets, uh, Joseph with the amazing Technicolor dream coat. You know, that's the guy. Okay. And his brothers sell him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt and he ends up rising up to power to be basically Pharaoh's right-hand man. And there's a big famine, and he's in charge of food distribution for that famine. Well, what happens is that his family, Israel and the other sons, they, they get hungry. And so they have to come to Egypt, and they have to get food. So they have to stand in front of Joseph. It's this amazing story. I hope we have time to talk about it in, in the series. In fact, we will talk about it in the series, but we're doing an entire series on the life of Joseph in the fall, okay, which would be great. So... Um, What's that called? Chin up, I think is what it's called. All right, so how to deal with adversity. So, um, so anyway, they, they end up in Egypt. That's how they get to Egypt. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph is the reason they end up in Egypt. What happens while they're in Egypt? They become slaves, right? They become slaves, right. And so, and so now what they need is they need deliverers. So they had the fathers, now they need deliverers. And God gives them Moses and then Joshua after him. And he takes them into Canaan, into the promised land. Now that they're in the promised land, they need some people to rule over them, but they don't have a formalized government. And so they put judges in place. That's step number one for them. And that's where we read about the book of Judges. People like Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and um, Deborah. This is where we read about the judges. And it's kind of this crazy period in time where different people are leading in different times. There's no organization to the whole thing. And so it gets a little bit crazy, and eventually the people say, well, we can't handle this anymore. We want a king. We want to be like all these other nations that have kings and organization and armies and all this. That's what we want. And there's a, there's a prophet who's also a judge at that time. His name is Samuel, and he's speaking to God on their behalf, and he's saying, they look at the people and they say, no, you don't want a king. <laughs> I know you think you want a king, but you don't want a king because kings get power hungry and kings control and all of that. And they said, no, 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 we want a king. So we go from the period of the judges into the period of the kings. And the kings begin with Saul. So uh, uh, Samuel anoints Saul the king. Saul's first. And then David. Now David is not Saul's son. Okay, go to the whole David and Goliath thing, right? This is when you're looking at the timeline and why this is important. David slaying Goliath isn't about the underdog overthrowing, uh, 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 you know, an opponent or, or an adversary. David and Goliath is about David establishing himself as a leader. It's about him be coming into the forefront and into the spotlight to ultimately become the king. And so David uh, then gets anointed king and then his son Solomon after him. Of course, Solomon was full of wisdom. So you have Saul, you have David, and you have Solomon. And um, those are not in alphabetical order. 
I'm sorry, that one's not in alphabetical order. But if you can remember SDS, that'll help you remember that one, SDS. Saul, David, Solomon. And then Solomon has uh, his son and another guy. Um, They uh, fight for power after Solomon uh, dies, and the kingdom splits into two. It's a divided kingdom. Jeroboam and Rehoboam are the two guys uh, over the kingdom. So you have the northern kingdom. You have the southern kingdom now. The northern kingdom... It's 10 of the tribes. It's called Israel. It retains the name Israel. And it's eventually overtaken by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom takes the name Judah. This is two of the tribes. This is the line of David coming through. This is the line that actually goes to Jesus. And they ultimately are taken over by the Babylonians. All right, so you have the kings. You have Saul, you have David, you have Solomon. Split kingdom, north-south. Southern kingdom is overtaken by Babylon and they're taken away into Babylonian exile. And this is, when, this is when Daniel and the lion's den and all of that is happening, okay? They go into Babylonian exile until eventually the, the king of Babylon agrees to let them go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And so then he sends them back and we have the rebuilders, which begins with Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple and then Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. So that's the timeline. You think about, you think about the flow of this, the organization of it, it makes sense, so it begins with, with founders, and then God starts to create his nation. They end up in slavery. They need to be delivered from that. And they, put, they finally are in the promised land, and they put these judges and for a period of time, and they say, well, that doesn't work. We want a king. So they get kings, but the kings end up fighting with each other and, and power struggles and power hungry. They end up getting exiled to Babylon, and they have to come back with rebuilders. So it makes sense when you, th- when you just think about the overall story of what's happening here, and you could easily memorize this. We'll work on it every single week, all right, as, w- as we come together for church on memorizing this timeline. So take a little time this week and look it over and start to, to commit it to memory. We'll-, we'll work on it this coming week. And then you see there's another section here called the prophets, and the prophets don't necessarily have a place in this timeline. They're there within the timeline. And so what we're going to do through the series is we're going to take a week on each one of these sections. Today we're talking about founders. Next week we'll be fathers. Then we'll talk about deliverers. Then we'll talk about judges. Then we'll talk about kings. Uh, Then we'll talk about prophets. And then we'll finish with rebuilders. So we'll work through each and every one of those as we go through the series. And I think it's going to be really eye-opening. So today I just want to talk for a minute um, because we spent all that time getting the stage set at the beginning. We don't have as much time to talk about the founders, but it's a pretty, pretty short section of the Old Testament. Um, Genesis 1 through Genesis 9, 10, 11, right in there, okay? And um, so there's a few things, and this is where I want us to begin to focus in on the big story of what God is doing and what he's saying with the Old Testament. We're going to set the stage for everything. So in the Old Testament, we see a few things. And if you want to jot some, some notes down, we're going to put them up on the screen for you. Uh, the first thing is, the most important thing, is that in the Old Testament, we see God's glory. We see God's glory. This is the, we see his power. We see his justice. We see his mercy. We see his creativity. We begin to understand who God is. He puts it on display for us right from the very beginning. Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right from the very beginning, God is set apart from all the rest of creation. God is actually the only, the only one that's truly creative. You might think, well, I'm pretty creative. No, not, no, we're not. We are, we are all working with what has already been created. 
Everything we do creatively is are iterations of something that already exists. God is the only one who's created out of nothing. That started with nothing and made something. Uh, one of my favorite lines, one of my favorite bands is a band called Dawes. I, I quote them all the time. Our series, Fishing for the Moon. Do you remember that? It's, you remember that series? Yeah, that came from a Dawes song. Anyway, uh, but uh, one of my favorite quotes from uh, a song. He said, now the only piece of advice that continues to help is anyone that's making anything new only breaks something else. <laughs> and that's, that's true about us and our creativity. And as, but as we look at scripture, what we get to see from the very beginning in God's creation, the way that he, he works miracles, the way that he, he moves mountains and parts seas and floods and does all of this is that God is God. That God is worthy and that God is holy and that God is just and that God is creative and that God is all of these things. And that the the most important thing that we can see in scripture is God's glory above all else. All right, so in the Old Testament, we see God's glory. The second thing we see is our human condition. In the OT, we see God's glory, our human condition, So God creates, he creates heavens and he creates the earth and he creates the waters and he creates the animals and he creates human beings. And it tells us this, Genesis chapter three, he said it was all good, okay? He said it was all good, but I don't know about you, but I look around and I go, I don't think it's all good anymore. Why not? Genesis chapter three, verse six six and seven. He puts them in the garden and he, he tells them there's one tree that they can't eat from. Adam and Eve, there's one tree in the garden they can't eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, looked tasty, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. That's the moment. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God created, you see, God created everything to give him glory, to bring him glory. And he created us to bring him glory. Not to bring ourselves glory, but to bring him glory. But when Eve sinned in the garden, and Adam sinned in the garden, it changed everything for us. We now have a sin nature where our desire naturally is to glorify ourselves and not to glorify God. So our human condition is selfish. Our human condition is prideful. Our human condition is arrogant. And that's a problem. Because the creation that God made to glorify him doesn't. It naturally glorifies itself. And so in the Old Testament, we see God's glory. We see our human condition. And it continues as even not just Adam and Eve, it continues as we read. It seems to be the theme of the first stories of the Bible. When we see Cain and Abel, when we see Noah, when we see all these things, the theme is God's glory versus our sinful, our human condition. Genesis chapter four, verse eight through 10. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. This is Adam and Eve's kids, boys. My boys were fighting this morning, by the way. 
I had to put them in timeout. They came to me for, <laughs> this is funny, they came to me, this, it's not as bad as Cain and Abel, but they, they uh, came with, with me for setup today, and uh, they were hitting each other with pool noodles, and uh, like hit each other in the face, I think, and one of them started crying, and uh, we got to work on that too, you shouldn't cry when you get in the face with a pool noodle, but, uh, but uh, then they, you know, they lashed out in anger and everything, and so I put them out in timeout, out here in the hallway, one at the end of one bench, and one at the end of the other bench, and then I came back in here, and I just did my thing. Totally forgot they were out there. They were sitting on that bench for about an hour. Until finally someone came in and said, hey, are your kids going to be out there forever or just? <laughs> yep, okay. So I went out there. I admitted my mistake to them, but I told them I hope they learned a lesson. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, it's not just Cain and Abel. That's what I'm saying. It's all of us. Um, but uh, so anyway, uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel your brother? As if he didn't know, right? He's looking for honesty. Where's Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So it's just this continued theme that we see in the Old Testament of our human sinful condition. And it gets so bad in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only continually evil. That's not definitive language. I don't know what is. Is it clear enough? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And I just want to be clear, that language can be a little confusing, um, that God regretted that he made man. It's not that God wished he hadn't. That's not what it's saying. It just showing the pain that God had in his heart because the, the people that he had created to bring him glory were trying to bring themselves glory and in doing so were just wicked and evil and hurting each other and not bringing honor and glory to him. And that will not stand with God. And so God wipes out the earth with a flood. The, what we see in the Old Testament is God's glory, our human condition. Now, would someone mind grabbing that light switch for me? Uh, Thanks, Dennis. Appreciate that. But there's a purpose to all of that. We see God's glory, our human condition, and God's passion, God's desire, God's plan to fix the former, to demonstrate the latter. We see God's plan to fix the former, to demonstrate the latter. What is, uh, what happens? It starts Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. God has brought the curse. He's, he's cursing them. And he says this to, uh, to Satan. The first thing, Satan is the one who tricks Adam, or tricks Eve, and then Eve gives the fruit to Adam. And then God curses them. He starts by cursing Satan. All right, that's where he starts. And he says this to Satan. This is very important. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That God's gonna create a barrier and frustration between Satan and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is, this is the first reference in scripture to God's plan to fix our human condition so that he can receive glory. 
Who's he talking about? Who's gonna bruise, who's gonna crush Satan's head and Satan's gonna bruise his heel? Who's he talking about? This is the first reference to Jesus in the scripture. And so right from the very beginning, after we sin, before God even curses the man and the woman, God prophesies and says, I'm going to save you. And so what does God do? Um, Verse 21, Genesis chapter 3, 21. And the Lord God, Adam and Eve had fashioned some little fig leaf clothing. Couldn't have been good. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed, clothed them. So yes, God just cursed them, but what does he do immediately after that? He cares for them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Why did God send him out of the garden of Eden? To protect them. To protect them from living in that condition forever. Immediately after God curses them, he cares for them and he protects them. And we see the beginning of God's plan to restore them. Told you God looked on the earth and he said, everybody's heart is continually wicked. I'm gonna destroy them with a flood. But this is what he says in Genesis chapter six. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. While everyone else was wicked, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the earth. And in verse 17, behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. But, but I will establish my covenant with you. I will make you a promise. See, God is, he's, he's showing his plan where, where this is going. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And God spares them to start new. And he makes a covenant. He makes a promise that he's not going to do that again. But the reason that he spares Noah is not just to spare Noah. It's not just because he wants to keep people on earth. He spares Noah because he knows that in sparing Noah, that he will bring him glory. Noah, it says that Noah walked with God. See, the story, you might hear some people say this. You might hear some people say that the point of the Bible or the story of the Bible is God's redemption of humanity. That's not the story of the Bible. It's a story of the Bible, but it is not the story of the Bible. 
See, the story of the Bible is not anthropocentric. It's not human-centered. It's theocentric. It's God-centered. The point of God saving us, the point of God setting us free, the point of God redeeming us and taking us out of our sinful condition is not for our sake. It's for his sake. The, The Bible is the story of the glorification of God. And within that, he restores humanity so that he can get glory. So when we think and we fast forward and we look at Jesus Christ on the cross, Jesus said that there was one coming who will, who will crush Satan's head, although Satan will bruise his heel. Satan bruised his heel on the cross. And Christ was crucified. But on the cross, Jesus accomplished the work of paying for our sin, our human condition, all the things I've done wrong, all the thoughts, every way that I have not brought God glory in my life. Jesus Christ paid for that on the cross. And if I put my faith in his death and I put my faith in his resurrection, he pays for my sin and I can be forgiven. Then I know I'm a child of God and God has restored my human condition. He takes his Holy Spirit and places his Holy Spirit in me. So I have a guide and a counselor and a comfort and a leader so that I can now choose to live my life for the glory of God instead of the glory of myself. That's the story of the scripture. I want to read to you. When we read in the New Testament, it assumes an understanding of the old. Let me read to you quickly from 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and then verse 9. Peter starts giving some examples from the Old Testament, things God did where he saved people. That's what he says. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And he gives some other examples. He said in verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. If God could save Noah, then he knows how to save you. But he's not saving you for your own sake. He's not saving you so that you can have a clean conscience. He's not saving you so that your life can get better. He's not saving you so that you can feel good. He is saving you so that you can do what you were created to do, which is to bring him glory in the way that you live, in the way that you speak, in the way that you act, in the relationships that you have with other people. If If the glory of God is the purpose of the Bible, and it is, then the glory of God should be the purpose of our lives. And as we go through this series, what we're going to learn at each step along the way is how we learn to bring God glory because we have to be retrained because our nature wants to bring it to ourselves. So that's what we're going to do. But we have to begin with this understanding. We have to begin with it admitting that God is worthy of glory and that we are full of sin. So let's begin that way and let's let's pray together. We're just gonna confess some things to him and confess these with me if you believe them with me. All right, let's pray. God, we come to you and we recognize your glory. That you are God and we are far from it. That you are holy without blemish 
that you are just. We recognize that you have created everything that exists. And we believe that you created us so that we would bring glory to you. But we don't, not naturally. You know, we've fallen, we've sinned. And so God, I just... Many of us have asked you to forgive us. You sent your son Jesus to forgive us. We put our faith in him and many of us have done that. But there may be someone who hasn't. And maybe today, maybe in, the, in this moment to contrast your perfection with my imperfection. Maybe you move in their heart today to put their faith in Jesus. To say, I believe. I believe that Jesus died. I believe that he rose again to pay for my sin and I need forgiveness. And then in this moment, you forgive them. And that for those that made the decision for the first time today and for those of us that made it years ago, the same. That today, we would choose your glory so that as we as we go through and we look at the Old Testament we look at this covenant that you made and this people that you built this family that you built that we would be able to see your promises and we'd be able to see how you fulfilled them we would not only be able to look to the past but we would be able to look to the present and not only look to the present but also look to the future so we can know how you want us to bring us bring you glory today and how you plan to bring yourself glory in the future. We're looking forward to this journey. And I just ask for each of us, God, that you, you take us on a personal journey as we walk through this together. A journey of discovery, a journey of faith, a journey of change so that our lives can do what you intended them to do, just to bring glory to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.